One thing stands out to me the most this morning, and that is John the Baptist does not subscribe to the old adage that you can catch more flies with honey than vinegar. (laughs) I mean, John has this wildly successful ministry. He is attracting people from Jerusalem and all over the Judean countryside. Just a ton of folks are walking from all over, some of them for days, to come and see John and to receive his baptism and to hear his sermons. They are responding with enthusiasm and eagerness. But then instead of saying that these folks are discerning or smart or even that they just got lucky, John goes on to call them snakes. (laughs) You brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Says John to the hordes who are coming his way. Now, I got to admit, John's angle seems a bit counterintuitive to me. Um, And so, you know, I'm often wrong about these things, though. So I I decided, you know, to do a little bit of research, uh, and I checked out all of my, my books on ministry and church growth, and none of them, none of them say that you should insult visitors. Uh, I know that's surprising to hear, but, but actually most of them even recommend just the opposite. Uh, apparently John is not up to date on the, on the recent marketing research. But all joking aside, does it not seem unfair that John is insulting those who come to him? Does it not seem unfair that he seems to even question their sincerity? After all, to be a member of that crowd is to be a bit forlorn. To be a member of that crowd is to be hungry and scared and heartbroken. To be a member of that crowd is to be in a world that seems cold and uncaring. Many of these folks, folk are sick. Many of them are old. Many of them are eaten up with grief and loss. They are oppressed and exploited. And even those who come with some power and authority are trapped. They are They are trapped by structures and patterns, trapped by old ways and traditions, trapped in webs of hierarchies and relations that not only dehumanize the victims, but dehumanize the perpetrators as well. These folks, they know they're broken. Some of them even know that they are snakes. They know they're lost. They are just wondering how to to move forward, wondering how old wounds can be healed and how they can be forgiven for old crimes, wondering how how to patch up the frayed fabric or mend the broken pieces of their lives. All those who go down to that old river do so with yearning 
and desire. For they are not going down to this site on a whim. They're going down to the site that was once uh, the place of a triumphant crossing of the people of Israel into the promised land. Now, of course, it has become for them just a shallow and muddy river. But yet they go there nonetheless with an inkling of hope that might even border on quiet desperation. They think maybe, just maybe, going there will bring a little bit of peace. Maybe it'll usher in something new. Perhaps we can sympathize. But there is John the Baptist calling these distraught people names. And we might wonder, we might wonder whether John gets it. We might wonder if John is unable to see their pain. We might wonder if John is being callous and unfeeling. Perhaps, perhaps he is. Or perhaps he knows all too well. Perhaps John shares his people's hopes and fears. Perhaps he shares their brokenness. Perhaps he is all too familiar with their distress. Perhaps it is out of love that he calls these people vipers, knowing that they need to be shocked out of their complacency, knowing that they shouldn't and can't rely on old structures and old contrivances for a false sense of security, but must instead stand up and turn toward God. Bear fruits worthy of repentance, John proclaims. We often think of repentance as feeling guilty for the bad things that we do, or imagine repentance as a form of sorrow for messing up. And there's a point to that. We should grieve the harm we cause. We should, we should feel sad for those occasions where we have been less than our best selves. But really, repentance is, is not so much about feelings of guilt. Nor is repentance really about adopting new practices and new behaviors. It's not about giving up a bad habit. I mean, inevitably, there will be old habits that are laid aside and new habits adopted. But this is more of a result of repentance rather than repentance itself. Nor is repentance about your fellow parishioner Martha Good's button. Have you seen her button this year? If you have not seen it, it shares a very Advent-appropriate and theologically astute message, one worth paying to. Jesus is coming. Look busy. <laughs> it's a good button. It's a good button, but it's, that's not repentance either. Now, repentance is about getting a new mind, 
It's about getting a, a new heart. It's about getting a new life. Repentance is about looking at our lives and our fellow human beings and our relationship with our Creator from a new perspective, from, from God's perspective. When John the Baptist and later Jesus tells folks to repent, they are telling them and us to change the direction in which we are looking for our meaning, to change the direction in which we are looking for our happiness. Repentance is is the turn toward God, which is also a turn to our fellow human beings and to the whole of creation and to the truth. It is a turning away from sin, which is to say from selfishness and egocentrism and falsehood. We are to turn from those things to God, not because we are bad, but rather because God wants us to know joy. And so John won't allow his visitors to be complacent, and he won't allow them to despair. John dreams that they might be shaken out of sleepwalking and woken up. John implores them and us to see our lives, to see our reality from the same vantage point as God. For John believes that that God is present here and now, summoning into creation, into a new future. Our invitation through repentance is to participate in this new future that has been ushered in with the coming of Christ. When we see our world, when we see our lives through the love that Christ's coming announces, then the invitation is to to live out of that good news. When we live out of this good news, then we do so through large acts and small. And I love the, 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 when people anxiously ask John, what then should we do? John's response, his advice, is simple and basic. If you have an extra coat, share it with someone who doesn't. If you have some extra food, share that too. To the reviled tax collectors and soldiers who come to see John, he does not tell them to abandon their jobs, but rather to live into those jobs with an eye towards justice and not exploiting others. This is how we live into this good news. This is how we live into God's perspective. This is how we live into the vision that God longs to give to us through repentance. Repentance can demand a whole life overhaul. Sometimes when we turn our lives over to God, it will mean profound and radical change. 
Sometimes it won't. But it will. It'll always mean doing small acts with great love. This third Sunday of Advent is often called Gaudet Sunday or Rejoice Sunday. The prophet Zephaniah proclaims in our first reading, Rejoice and exult with all your hearts, O daughter Jerusalem. St. Paul tells the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say, Rejoice. Rejoice. It's why we light the pink candle on this third Sunday of Advent on our Advent wreaths. It's a symbol of our joy. It's a symbol of our rejoicing. It might look like John is not inviting his listeners to rejoice. But instead, he's paving the way for that joy. For to receive this joy that we are being invited into, we must turn toward God. We must heed John's advice. And we must repent. We must turn toward God. And in doing so, in doing so, we will allow God to transform our hearts and our minds and our lives so that we might rejoice so that we might rejoice. And so, turn toward God. Turn toward God and rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Amen.